Hey guys, if you're like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market. This next sponsor, however, has provided me with some very interesting facts to pass on to you. Fact 1. Teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for most it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact 2. Teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are opened and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact 3. Tooth sensitivity is a result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open to the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact 4. Caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they don't have pores for the stains to latch to. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color, as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact 5. The key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as the whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they are bulky and do not create a seal. Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for under $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head on over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their lab direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you would pay at the dentist. And if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom fitted night guards, once again for a fraction of the price the dentist charge. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use coupon code WATTS for an exclusive discount. That's Watts, W-A-T-T-S. The following podcast is intended for educational purposes. Listener discretion is advised. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant. At this point, you must realize that we only have tentative and very meager amount of information. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they call Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. This is where they lived, among the stables, barns, and phony buildings of an old rundown movie location 20 miles from Los Angeles. They called themselves The Family. Weird and bizarre. Those are the words Los Angeles coroner Thomas Noguchi used to describe the crimes. Weird and bizarre. But those words only begin to describe the sick and twisted scene that police found when they arrived at the ranch-style house on Cielo Drive on the morning of August 9, 1969. 
but it would be another four months before the series of events of that night's brutal murders would be revealed. And when the whole story came out, the facts surrounding the case were so bizarre, it sounded like fiction. The five victims, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Farkowski and Stephen Parent, along with Lino and Rosemary Lebianca, killed in an equally brutal fashion the next night, were seemingly chosen at random. They were murdered not just by one single person, but by a group of devoted followers of a hippie guru who created a family of brainwashed children who, as it turned out, would do anything for their leader, their guru, their messiah. His name was Charles Manson. As LA Prosecuting District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi would argue in his trial that the motive for these brutal murders was a far-fetched conspiracy theory about an apocalyptic race war and the entire overthrow of society. And, according to Bugliosi, it was all communicated to Manson, in secret, through clues hidden in the lyrics of the Beatles' White Album. But, is that the whole story? Is that where it ends? Is the official narrative of Helter Skelter the end of all investigative reporting into the Manson family murders? Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter is one of, if not the most best-selling true crime novels. In fact, at the time of Bugliosi's death in 2015, it had sold over 7 million copies. And, after prosecuting Charles Manson and the family, he had secured for himself a spot in the highest throes of legal society, and in the eyes of those professionals, he's a legend. But what if the events laid out in Helter Skelter, which is considered the official narrative, was only half the story? What if the trial was corrupt from the start? What if the murders could have been stopped before they happened? What if the end of the 60s, free love, and the hippie movement came to an abrupt end for a reason? What if someone knowingly created the Manson family? This is Manson, the experiment. I'm your host, Garrett, and this is episode one. I know, Charlie, I know you inside now. You got the king, Charlie. Everything I was, was, Charlie. nothing left anymore. No people, nothing left them. They're all the Charles too. Vincent Bugliosi made a name for himself with his true crime drama, Helter Skelter. It was the first of its kind, and it established him as a giant in the true crime and legal arenas. He fascinated an entire nation with tales of brainwashing, sex, drugs, and murder. And to top it off, rock and roll. But lately I've begun to realize that there are some pretty big holes in the narrative, and plenty of skeletons in his closet. There's also a lot of important facts that didn't make the final cut in the book. According to Bugliosi and the Helter Skelter theory, these seemingly normal, middle-class children with no previous history of crime or violence were brainwashed and driven to kill by this cult guru. They did it willingly and without question. But the only question that remains is how. The youngest member of the family, an underage teenage runaway and popular schoolgirl, told investigators that Manson had brainwashed her and others with sex, LSD, constant Bible readings, rambling lectures about the revolution, and the continuous playing of the Beatles' White Album. He further stated that Manson brainwashed his followers through a series of acid trips, mandatory orgies, and hypnotic, repetitive lectures outlining Helter Skelter and the race war he was determined to start. 
By the time of the trial in the summer of 1969, the question that came to everyone's mind was, how was this 35-year-old, nearly illiterate ex-convict able to attract and create this murderous cult of followers in the mere two years since his release from prison? Well, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Courtrooms and iron bars had been the life of Charles Manson since he was 12 years old. And by the time he was 16, he'd already lost all fear of anything that the administration could throw at him. Due to the nature of life on the inside, he already knew that dying in prison would be his fate. His story began on November 12, 1934, when, while living in Cincinnati, Ohio, unwed and only 16, his mother gave birth to him. Hospital records list the baby as no-name Maddox. His father was a young drugstore attendant who called himself Colonel Scott. He was a transit laborer working on a nearby dam project and didn't stick around long enough to see the pregnancy through. The name Manson came from William Manson, a man who Charles' mother lived with for a short time after his birth. William was considerably older than Kathleen, but because of his persistence, they eventually got married. Unfortunately, the marriage was short-lived. After the divorce, Kathleen and Charles moved in with her parents. Often, Charles' grandparents or friends would tell him the story of the time his mother sold him for a pitcher of beer. According to the story, Kathleen was in a bar one day with Charles in her lap. The waitress, who was a would-be mother longing for a child of her own, jokingly asked Kathleen if she could buy Charles from her. A pitcher of beer and he's yours. The waitress got her the pitcher, and Kathleen stuck around just long enough to finish it off before leaving Charles sitting there. Several days later, Manson's uncle searched around town and eventually found him at the waitress's house. As the years went on, Charles Manson grew colder by the abandonment of his mother and the years spent in juvenile detention centers. In February 1951, when Manson was 16, he and a pair of other boys broke out of the Indiana Boys' School for the second time. They stole a car and drove across state lines, which is a federal offense. Eventually, a roadblock in Utah brought the joyride to an end. Manson was sent to National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. From there, he was sent to the Natural Bridge Honor Camp, where he was caught by a guard raping another boy at knife point. Because of his offenses at Bridge Honor Camp, Manson was sent to another reformatory in Virginia, where his behavior was no different. Hardened by the years of imprisonment and the abuse suffered from these institutions, he grew cold. Then, in May of 1954, he was released early on good behavior. Manson was 19, and it was the first time he was on the street since he was 12 years old. His parole mandated that he return to live with the same aunt and uncle who had taken care of him while his mother was in prison. Soon he found work at a racetrack, and one day stopped by a card room to see if he can swing his day's wages into some extra money. After a couple of hours at the poker table, caught the eye of a woman across the room. Manson wasn't her first lover, but she was his. Soon enough, in January of 1955, they were married and had a child on the way. The couple headed to Los Angeles and rented a crappy place, but Manson's lust for crime couldn't stop him from falling back into old habits, and soon enough he was caught for stealing cars. He failed to show up to that hearing, resulting in a three-year sentence at Terminal Island, a federal prison in San Pedro, California. 
Upon release in 1958, his wife and child were long gone, and Manson once again turned to a life of crime to support himself. He was 24 years old and was going to let all of his jailhouse tutoring go to good work, but his luck was short-lived. The following May, Manson was arrested again, this time for forging a government check. The amount of the check was $37.50, and for this crime, he was sentenced to 10 years. But moved by the emotional plea of a woman who claimed to be in love with Manson, begging for his release so they can get married, the judge suspended the sentence and let Manson walk free. Again, Manson returned to a life of crime and began pimping and stealing cars, conning people out of their money and robbing whatever he could. It was at this point that the FBI put Manson under surveillance, hoping to find him in violation of the Mann Act, which prohibits the transportation of prostitutes across state lines. They never got the chance to charge him for it, but they did find him in violation of his probation when he took off to Mexico with another woman. Because of this, the judge ordered that the 10-year suspended sentence he'd received earlier be reinstated. That same judge who granted him probation before now claimed, If there ever was a man who demonstrated himself completely unfit for probation, he is it. It was a trend of catch and release that would continue throughout Manson's criminal career. But while in prison, Manson would take the time to reinvent himself. It was a long haul, he wasn't concerned. He took the time to learn guitar, taking lessons from the infamous criminal Alvin Creepy Carpus, and studied Scientology. And it was during his time in prison that he would hear for the first time the music of the Beatles. As Manson bided his time in prison, listening to the Beatles, playing guitar, and being Crazy Charlie, the world kept turning. The rigid morals of the 50s were loosening, and young people's minds were starting to expand in an explosion of color and sounds that had never been seen or heard before. Sex, love, and rock and roll was the new way of life. The energy was contagious, and everybody wanted to be a part of it. The music was changing too. The sounds of the Beatles and the Beach Boys echoed across parking lots and sandy beaches across the globe. It was truly a time of happiness and bliss, free thinking, and a generation of youth who finally decided to think for themselves, question their political leaders, and make a stand. They would let their voices be heard, and they wouldn't be swayed by the archaic beliefs of their parents, and wouldn't be told what was right and what was wrong. It was their choice. It was their time. But... That's not to say there weren't those who tried to stop it. The hallucinogens are drugs whose primary effects are on the mind. So they are frequently called psychedelic. They include mescaline and psilocybin. The best known is lysergic acid diethylamide, derived from a fungus that grows on rye grain. Pure LSD is very powerful. One ounce is enough for 300,000 average doses. Extensive experimentation has failed to establish a medical use for LSD, but study continues, and the legal supply of the drug is restricted for use in these carefully supervised research settings. Before LSD escaped the lab and was consumed by the general public, 
the U.S. government was secretly testing the effects of the drug on hundreds of unsuspecting American civilians and military personnel. In one operation, prostitutes were to lure unwitting Johns for sexual encounters, or testing. And while they were unaware, agents slipped drugs into their drinks and monitored behind two-way mirrors. Before the documentation and other facts of the program were made public, those who talked of it were brushed off as being insane. The LSD experiments were reportedly carried out because the U.S. government believed that Communist Russia, North Korea, and China were using the drug to brainwash captured American soldiers. Consequently, the CIA didn't want to fall behind in developing and responding to this potentially useful technology. So, incredibly, it decided to slip acid secretly to Americans, at the beach, in city bars, at restaurants. And for a decade, the CIA conducted completely uncontrolled tests in which they drugged people unknowingly, then followed and watched them without intervening, no matter what the circumstances were. One of perhaps the most prominent researchers in the field of LSD and its effects on the human mind was Jolly West. Born in Brooklyn in 1924, West enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force during the Second World War and swiftly moved up the ranks to Colonel. Early in his career, West researched possible methods of controlling human behavior at Cornell University. And, during the Korean War, he helped to deprogram returning prisoners of war who had allegedly been brainwashed by the enemy. After the war had ended, captured American pilots admitted on national radio that they'd sprayed the Korean countryside with illegal biological weapons. It was a confession so beyond the scope of reasonable thinking at the time that the CIA blamed communists. The prisoners must have been brainwashed. When the American prisoners returned, the army brought in a team of scientists to deprogram them. Among those scientists was Jolly West. He would later claim to have studied 83 prisoners of war, 56 of whom he claimed had been forced to make false confessions. He and his colleagues were credited with reassimilating the prisoners into society, and, more importantly, had them take back their claims about having used biological weapons. Jolly West's success with the prisoners gained him entrance into the inner circle of the intelligence community. The one thing everyone realized was, mind control ops were the way of the future, and... Jolly West was the right man for the job. At first, the agency wanted only to prevent further potential brainwashing by the Soviets. But slowly, over time, the defensive program became an offensive one. In a speech at Princeton University, CIA Director Alan Dules warned that communist spies could turn the American mind into a phonograph playing a disc put on its spindle by an outside genius. Just days after those remarks, on April 13, 1953, he officially set Project MKUltra into motion.
During the early period of the Cold War, the CIA became convinced that communists had discovered a drug or technique that would allow them to control human minds. In response, the CIA began its own secret program called MKUltra to search for a mind-controlled drug that could be weaponized against enemies. As part of the search for drugs that would allow people to control the human mind, CIA scientists became aware of the existence of LSD, and this became an obsession for the early directors of MKUltra. The MKUltra program, which operated from the 1950s until the early 60s, was created and run by a chemist named Sidney Gottlieb. Since the operation's exposure in a New York Times article on December 22, 1974, it is now viewed as the most sustained search in history for techniques of mind control. Some of the experiments were covertly funded at universities and research centers, while others were conducted in American prisons. Many of these unwitting subjects endured psychological torture, ranging from electroshock to high doses of LSD, to create a way to seize control of people's minds first you had to blast away the existing one. Second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. Two months after MKUltra started, Jolly West, who was then Chief of Psychiatric Service at Lackland Air Base in Texas, wrote to Gottlieb and detailed the experiments he proposed to perform. Using a combination of drugs and hypnosis, he aimed to discover the degree to which information could be extracted from unwilling subjects, with the possible effect for amnesia in addition, he planned on studying techniques for implanting false information into the minds of subjects, basically rewiring someone's mind without their knowledge. The aim was to create carriers of messages who could deliver long, complex messages which would secretly be embedded into their minds without their knowledge and without any memory of the message once delivered. Needless to say, he ended the note, we must eventually put the test in practical trials in the field. Perhaps the strangest of all these experiments occurred not in a laboratory, but in a city zoo, and its subject, Tusco, a 14-year-old Indian elephant. The experiment took place on August 3, 1962, at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Oklahoma City. West's stated intention was to see whether LSD, yet hit the streets as a recreational drug, would induce a condition called muths in Tusco. Muth, which occurs naturally in all bull elephants, is a period of heightened testosterone production and high aggression. It is characterized by a seemingly random episode of wild and erratic, rageful and destructive behavior. Why West would have been interested in this is unclear, but one can assume the experiment had sinister motives. Tusco, the prize of Oklahoma City Zoo, was injected with 297 milligrams of LSD, an enormous dose for even an elephant. To put it into perspective, 0.2 milligrams is enough to produce major mental disturbances that resemble psychosis and delirium in people. In other words, it's enough to get someone high out of their mind. After five minutes, Tusco trumpeted and fell over onto his side and began seizuring. His pupils dilated, his legs became stiff, he bit his tongue and his breathing became labored. Twenty minutes later, in an attempt to calm him, a large amount of the antipsychotic Thorazine was injected into the elephant but it didn't help. After another hour, West pumped Tusco with a tranquilizer, and a few minutes later, he was dead. The whole process took one hour and 40 minutes, and in the end, it appeared the experiment was a failure. 
but it would only be a matter of time before his experiments would succeed. Well, this is uh, Ashbury Street here. A lot of those streets seem to be a popular street among the hippies. Why, I really couldn't say because I've never asked any of them. I'd say the most concentration among the hippies is right along between Haight, Masonic, and Ashbury. They came here because of the propaganda, or the songs that were put out about Haight-Ashbury, the magazine articles about Haight-Ashbury. A kid that is uptight with his family, a kid that wants to run away, thinks, wow, where can I run away to? Kids know of Haight-Ashbury all over the country. Wow, I'll go to Haight-Ashbury. They'll put me up. They'll love me. So they all come. During its heyday, which culminated in the 1967's infamous Summer of Love, youth from around America converged in the height by the thousands. Historians deem the neighborhood the birthplace of the hippie movement, marked by peaceful protests and psychedelic experimentation. And, in the fall of 1966, Jolly West arrived in the San Francisco area to study this cultural phenomenon. Accepting a government grant and taking a year-long leave of absence from the University of Oklahoma, he headed down to the height. He let go of his crew cut and grew out his hair, skipped a few showers, and bought some new second-hand clothes at a nearby thrift store. He wanted to blend in. What he witnessed fascinated him. The streets vibrated with the pulsating vibrations of love, and the music echoed across the hills. On every corner, it seemed, men stood, surrounded by young women who looked upon them as they wrapped their philosophies. Trapped in their gazes, high on drugs, but on the edge of every word. It reminded him of a 1965 article he had written about the dangers of hypnotism, which discussed the risk of dangerous groups led by crackpots who could hypnotize their followers into committing violent crimes. Jolly next established a laboratory, which he disguised as a hippie crash pad in a small, crumbling Victorian house. In the crash pad, he enlisted the help of six graduate students and instructed them to skip a few haircuts and dress like hippies. Blend in. Anybody who stopped by was welcome in, and they were free to do whatever they wanted. What the purpose of this experiment was is anyone's guess, even today. The crash pad opened in 1967 at the peak of the Summer of Love. The pad was decorated with psychedelic posters, paint, and made to look as authentic as possible. But even then, the young passerbys couldn't help but be wary of this strange, welcoming place with its dead-eyed host and bad vibes. Hyde Ashbury was at the peak of its glory, and it wouldn't be long before Charles Manson would experience it for himself. With what seemed like a get-out-of-free card that never expired, Charles Manson would find himself at the center of the hippie movement, and perhaps the efforts to destroy it. Thanks for listening to Manson, The Experiment. If you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to leave a five-star rating or write a review. It really does help.